G'day. Uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we'd always remember the incredible truths that you've given us, that as our knowledge is growing, that we will have everything that we need for life and godliness. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, we didn't have a public holiday on Monday, you probably uh, realised, but um, uh, the last weekend, last Saturday, was actually the celebration of Anzac Day, uh, which goes beyond actually an anniversary of the landing in Gallipoli in 1915. It's actually now become the day where we remember Australians of all generations who served and died in all the wars and all the peacekeeping efforts around the place and, and conflicts around the world as well. And at most Anzac memorials, uh, most Anzac memorial services, the ode is actually said, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Not not about wars, not about conflicts, uh, but about remembering uh, pay attention. I've got nothing new to tell you today. I want you to pay attention to the apostles and prophets. Now, that probably irks you a little bit when I say I've got nothing new to tell you, uh, because here you are, you've given up your lunchtime, a precious lunchtime, probably in a packed day, to come to public meeting to learn something new. Um, tough. <laughs> um, uh, my, my question is, why read the Bible when you know it, what it says already? And I think the answer is, so that it will actually refresh your memory. Uh, Do you notice the passage that is read to us today, uh, the the opening paragraph there in verses 12 to 15, how how Peter's making clear that all he's doing is reminding you in verse 12, trying to refresh your memory in verse uh, 13, uh, so that you'll always be able to remember in verse 15. Repeated three times in that passage is, remember. Refresh. Make sure you remember. Now, I don't know about your memory, but my memory is pretty shocking. Uh, I grew up um, uh, going through med, and you could actually buy uh, books of mnemonics that help you remember things. It's big, fat books where everything is alphabetized, and you can try to remember everything. Or there was a little book in uh, MedSoc bookshop that was called the Biochemist Songbook. And so you can sing the whole Krebs cycle to the tune of Waltzing Matilda. It was the best thing ever, right? It was the only way I could get through the exams. Um, It's always fun watching kids grow up as well, uh, seeing their memory develop. Uh, I can remember Anastasia when she was really young and just started learning to chalk. Uh, She'd go, lol, lol, which is asking for a lolly, right? And being a nice, kind father, I'd give her, you know, one of the lolly snakes and I'd give it to her. And she'd be so happy. But she's also a greedy little girl as well, so she goes, two, two. And and it was wonderful what you could do back in those days. You could take back the snake, right, break it in two pieces, give it back to her, and she'd be happy. (laughs) It was wonderful. And, and, and it was amazing what you could do. You, you could hide her toys away for a week, right? And then a week later, give it back to her. And she thinks that dad is so good in buying her new toys. It's wonderful. <laughs> memories developing. Uh, I wonder what your memory's like. Uh, he, he's a, ooh, whoops. Uh, here's a little bit of a toy. Uh, fast memory test. See how you go with this. It's visual memory. Can you see it okay? 
It needs music in the background. Maybe tomorrow I'll sing. No, that'd be bad. Okay. Yeah? <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> Except if you're colour blind. The dominating colour was green. Sorry, I moved that back. Whoops, left side, big stone, there. Oh. Ah, cool. Okay. Um, uh, that's, that's just to say, look, I mean, that, that's just a bit of fun, right? Um, but I, I'm saying that most of us need working with our memories. Oh. Okay, um, and, and uh, I mean, that's, that's trivial stuff. Um, my child and what we see there is probably trivial. But I wonder how well you remember um, the truths of the scriptures. Uh, we, we've been looking at uh, Acts, um, the, the book of Acts for our book of the year. Um, who actually remember that, by the way? Um, who remember week one that we did Acts chapter one? Good, that's great. Now, who remembers what passages Rowan referred to in Acts chapter 1 that really helps make sense of the great directive that God gives to his people? The Great Commission, really. Yeah. About the Spirit, Isaiah chapter 32. About witnessing, Isaiah chapter 43. About Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 2. Now, it's unfair, you haven't had time to look over it, but I wonder how good our memory actually is. And Peter's job is, he's always reminding them. That's his job. While he's alive and while after he passes away is what that always means. That's what he's saying. While I'm with you in the tent of this body, my job is to remind you. And I'm going to prepare for the time when I'm no longer going to be here and my job is to remind you. See, Peter's writing, you see, at the end of that apostolic age, The time when those who actually walked and talked with Jesus, those who heard him and saw him, that was coming to an end. He was going to die. And what's going to happen when he dies and his fellow apostles have gone? How's the next generation going to know that truth? And Peter says, I'm going to write it down. And it's almost like Peter saying, I'm giving here my last will and testament. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to hold on to. And for Peter, Christianity is not about novelty. It's not just about learning new things. It's about remembering. It's about repeat knowledge. It's about seeing old truths in a fresh light. It's about being excited about that. Because we so easily forget. 
I walked around a week before my chemistry exams in the HSC, not knowing where my notes were. (laughs) Two weeks afterwards, I found them in the freezer. (laughs) It's crazy. When you're stressed, things go. And Peter says, my job, before I pass away and after I die, my job always is going to be refresh your memory. But I think one of the things that we say is, right, that's great. If we need reminders, who's this Peter to do this job of reminding? Some things, not important. But some things are really important and you've got to make sure that you get it right. Uh, as, as I've been telling you, one of my uh, first jobs when I finished uh, university was to work in the public hospital system as an intern, uh, as a doctor, as an intern. And basically interns are unqualified for anything. Right? We're basically useless people who walk around the public hospital system with clipboards taking notes. My job when I started doing orthopaedic surgery was to mark on people's legs right, which side was being operated. Now, that's actually vital. <laughs> I, I don't know how many times you've heard on the news that someone's wrong leg's been operated on, and it's probably one of the reasons why I pay 10% of my medical income into medical indemnity insurance, right? But it's, it's, some things are really important to get right. And what Peter's saying is, we're talking about the almighty and living God here. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about hell. It matters that we get it right. And so our question is, how do we know that we're going to get it right? How do we know that we're going to get this right? Remember. Three times Peter says it. And I don't care whether you remember or not, That doesn't matter because Peter already says to his people that he's writing to, they actually know the truth. They're firmly established in the truth. And Peter says it's still important for you guys to remember. And he's going to do that while he's alive and while he passes away. And our question is, what are your credentials, Peter? What are your credentials in reminding us of the truth? Now, before I go on much further, I'm going to do some basic epistemology, right? Um, uh, for those of you who do philosophy, this is very simplified, so please forgive me. Um, uh, I never studied arts, uh, to much my shame. I wish I did. I wish I did philosophy and stuff like that. But here's your basic epistemology. Your epistemology, how to know things. There's really only two schools, right? Two ways of knowing things that are around. One side is rationalism, thinking. The whole René Descartes thing, I think, therefore I am. Um, It's about working things out. And it's beautiful because it's neat. It's always provable. It works. So one plus one equals two. Therefore, two minus one equals one. It's just beautifully, logically consistent. And it's all about thinking. But it doesn't get you very far. It just keeps you in your brain, in your head. Uh, The other side of epistemology, the other side of how you get to know things is empiricism, experience, experimentation, getting to know the world that's out there. So one side, beautifully logical, stays inside your head, but the other side, you get to test what the world's like. You get to measure and weigh and, 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 and see and experiment. That's how you get to know things. But unfortunately, those things are actually limited in what they can do. And this is an illustration that I ripped off from Philip Jensen, but I think it works really, really well. I want you to imagine my sister, right? Think of my sister. Through rationalism, through thinking, what can you work out about my sister? You you can do all sorts of thinking and you go, right, sister, implied in the word sister is that she's female. That's pretty good, right? 
uh, sister, there's some kind of relationship to Michael. So either by uh, genetic or um, if she's adopted, there's still some sort of legal relationship in family. We're related. You can think a bit more and speculate and think, well, uh, if they are genetically related, she's probably Asian, which means that she's probably short, right? And she's got black hair, brown eyes. You can say a whole lot of things. Rationally working it out to say these are consistent thoughts with the word, uh, with the little phrase, Michael's sister. Okay. But I still don't think you know her. Okay. Empirically, what can you know about my sister? So say if I brought her in here, right? You can measure her, you can weigh her, right? You, you can even put her in the bomb calorimeter and actually work out what she's made out of. But you won't know my sister. The only way that you get to know my sister is if someone reveals to you about her, whether she does herself or whether I do as I tell you about her, that she's the chief dietitian in the whole of Hong Kong, that she's married to a dentist called David and she lives in Hong Kong. You know, there's a whole lot of information that you, you just can't get just by mere observation or, 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 or mere speculation. But let's come to this passage because this is what Peter says. Peter says, we did, not, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. They weren't fables. They weren't speculations. They weren't myths. But we weren't putting the truth away like those false teachers that we're going to look at next week. That, that's not our modus operandi. That's not how we go about doing it. We're not speculators. We didn't just think up this idea. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he says there. It wasn't even our idea. We know it because we got a glimpse of his glory. And he goes on to speak in this paragraph about the transfiguration. He's remembering the time when, when Peter, where he was there on top of the mountain, and suddenly he caught a glimpse of the glory of God. And he probably saw Jesus in his proper role. Now, one of the things about biblical revelation is that that revelation comes in the context of history, which means that you can actually check those things out and weigh those, that revelation up by the content, but also in the context of history as well. And it's interesting that part of New Testament historicity is that lots of events in the New Testament are actually recorded for us by many different authors. And there's substantial agreement between them. So this incidence of the transfiguration, right, that's actually recorded by Matthew, Mark and Luke. And here again in 2 Peter. One event, different authors, different people, and it's not exactly the same. Because if it was exactly the same, you'd say, look, they colluded. They cooked it up. But it's just different enough not to change the content, but similar enough to know that, yeah, look, it sounds like an eyewitness event. It wasn't our invention. It didn't come to our minds. It came from our eyes. Okay. You might now go, right, okay, Peter, I know what you saw, right? You saw something. I can't deny your experience. It's just that, Peter, we've only got your word for it. We've only got your interpretation. And you know how that's true, isn't it? Every event doesn't mean much unless it's interpreted. We often say a picture paints a thousand words, but sometimes pictures are pretty ambiguous. Um, can I have a show of hands here? Who watches the show The Gruen Transfer? Yeah, there's a good bunch of you. For those of you who don't, just have a look around those hands. It's a funny show. It's one of um, those shows that... Uh, uh, it's a show about ads, basically. 
And often in the opening of the show, they show this incredible ad that no one has any idea what's going on. And it goes on for a minute or so. And they flick it to these ad executives and actually ask them what the ad was trying to sell. What's it about? And most of the time they get it completely wrong. Unless you have that last little bit in the ad, which actually tells you what the product is and what they're trying to sell, it makes no sense. Here's another one, right? Uh, Little men, they dig a hole, right, nice and deep, they jump into it. More men dig a little hole, they jump into it. And you think, this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But if I paint the story and show you the context that the context is in the First World War and the front line, and what they were doing was digging trenches so that they can jump in and be safe from enemy fire, it makes sense. But just seeing little pictures of people in distance digging holes and jumping in it doesn't make sense. A story, an experience without interpretation, sometimes is difficult. And Peter goes on, yes, I've had an experience, but we didn't just see with our eyes. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice of his majesty came down from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We heard this voice. We didn't just see, we, we heard. You see, you, you go back to Mark's Gospel um, and you look at the transfiguration event there, it's just a ridiculous moment. Peter goes up to the mountains, see these wonderful figures from the Old Testament, all shining and bright, and, and he just doesn't know what to say. He thinks, man, this is the Kodak moment. I want to capture this, so let's have three tents. And in Mark's Gospel, you see that in brackets, Peter said that because he had no idea what he was talking about. You know, you know how people react sometimes when they're shocked? Um, some people just are in stunned silence. Their, their jaw drops through the ground and, you know, they have nothing to say and they, they're just shocked, right? You know how some friends of yours, when, when they're surprised, they just gabble. Blah, 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 blah. I think Peter was a gabbler. He, he sees this amazing thing, right? with, with, with the, the, the people of the Old Testament and Jesus standing there, and he goes, so, let's build a tent. He had no idea what's going on. <laughs> and Peter's saying, don't think that I sat there and made it all up. I didn't have the foggiest idea what was going on there. It wasn't my idea. It never occurred to me that that was what it was all about. And the picture wasn't enough for me. I saw it. But then a voice from heaven actually told me what it's all about. It's about God revealing what he's on about. It's about God revealing, this is my son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. And that phrase, that little sentence, actually two bits from the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is a psalm about a rebellious world. That's where the first bit comes. Psalm 2 starts off, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their vetters. This is a classic picture of rebellion. We're all like this. We all want to say, rack off God. We want to run world our own way. We want to run life our own way. That's what it's about. And the reply comes, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on, my holy, uh, on Zion, my holy hill. You can rebel as much as you want. It's going to get you nowhere because I'm going to put my king in my place. God's going to have the last laugh. 
I proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Right? That, that's where the you are my son bit comes from in 2 Peter. That's a quote that's picked up at the mountaintop. Um, in whom I'm well pleased. All right? Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And what's the lesson to be learned? Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. You can rebel as much as you want, but it's this king who will come in power and will have the last word. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in it. You treat this king the way he ought to be treated. God's king will be his son in the future. That's one of the great claims That's what was said at Jesus' baptism as well in Mark 1 and the parallels. That's the first half of that little bit. It's supposed to bring all that to to Peter. And Peter says, I didn't make this up. God says, this is what Jesus is like. He's the king of Psalm 2. But not only is he the king of Psalm 2, the other half of that quote comes from Isaiah 42 in verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. That's where that phrase comes from, the second half of that little quote. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Peter is up there with James and John on the mountain. As he sees Jesus transformed in front of him, he tries to work out what the heck is going on. And he hears this voice from heaven. He's calling out, this one is that servant who will bring justice to the nations. For those of you who know the book of Isaiah, you know that Isaiah chapter 42 to Isaiah chapter 53 contains a whole lot of songs about the servant, the suffering servant as Christians know him. The final song in Isaiah chapter 53 is about the servant taking on the sin of the whole world, being laid on him, that lowly character, the one who's hated and despised and knocked about and beaten up, that one's finally killed because of other people. And so you have in this one little quote two incredible aspects, two figures. The king, the Messiah, who's going to come and rule and conquer the nations. Psalm 2. And you have the suffering servant, the one who's going to be killed by the nations in Isaiah 42. Now, for a moment, if you drop your hindsight as a Christian, it just doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't have made this stuff up. You just think, hang on, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Now, it, it's sort of like if, if Prince Charles ever get to be the king, bless his soul, one day he might actually get there, right? But imagine if he actually gets to be king and at his coronation he has his head chopped off. <laughs> I don't think that's how Charles imagined it's going to happen. He hasn't told me either way, but I don't presume that that's going to happen. The idea is that the king is going to be crowned. That's simple. Right? You can understand that concept, can't you? King, crowned. Wonderful. Or you can imagine the idea of a king being executed. If, if the king's done bad things, they've abrogated their responsibility, well, you know, you'll get rid of the king. The idea that by execution you're going to crown the king, that's nonsense. 
where are you going to put the crown once the head's removed anyway? It doesn't make sense. That's the picture we've got here. And Peter says, I didn't make this up. This stuff about Jesus, I didn't make up. I was told this. This Jesus that I saw in front of me, God says he's going to be the king of Psalm 2 and he's the suffering servant of Isaiah. Know that. Jesus died is a fact. All sorts of interpretation you can give, George. God's interpretation is he's king. He's suffering servant. He will come back to judge. Those two things together. Well, Peter then has a message because of what he saw. He says in verse 16, We do not follow cleverly invented stories when you told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Peter's main message. When he understood what what Jesus was about, his message was about Jesus' power and about his coming. That's the heart of Peter's gospel. And you can see it in those passages there. We've already looked at Acts 2 earlier on this semester. We looked at Acts 10. Acts 2 says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus, and that's what he proclaims in Acts 2. Jesus is King. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. In Acts 10, he puts it even more clearly. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. goes on, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's consistent with my message. My message in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts all over the place. Everything they've written, everything they've said is that Jesus is king and he's going to come back to rule. Jesus is a judge. And we say, you couldn't have made this up. That's the apostolic witness. That's a witness of the apostles. That's the great message that we have. But Peter actually goes on in verse 19 and we have the words of the prophets made more certain. See, that's what Peter claims is his right, he writes. We've got the words of the prophets. We've got the Old Testament scriptures. He's speaking about the Old Testament prophets there. We've got them even more certain. It's clear as you read the Old Testament that God is a great king who will come and execute judgment. That he's going to come and rescue his people. In the other of Peter's book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Uh, In verses 10 to 12, you can jot that down. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things, that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into those things. The prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to the king. Even the prophets weren't sure about what they were writing. And this side of the cross, Peter says, we have the prophets made more certain. We've experienced Jesus. We've been interpreted what Jesus is about. 
And we know the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then he goes on, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the prophets didn't make it up either, like Peter. They didn't make it up. It wasn't though, you know, one morning Isaiah woke up, had his cereal, you know, had a few cuppers, looked out, the sun was shining, said, great, this is a beautiful day for some prophecy. Let's get a few under my belt. It wasn't like that. The truths originated from God. The interpretations originated from God. But it wasn't strict dictation either. It wasn't like, you know, God said, okay, time to take down a lament, Jeremiah. You know, sit down, get a pen. No, it wasn't like that either. Men carried along, people carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, enduring presence. The Holy Spirit, transforming power. And now we get another glimpse of what the Holy Spirit's work is. In revelation, in interpretation. Do come to annual conference, won't you? It's going to be fantastic. Come back to verse 19. And we have the words of the prophet made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as a light shining in a dark place. I think a lot of us nowadays walk around saying, well, the Bible's not enough. It's okay for them. It's okay for those Old Testament people. But, you know, we live in the modern world and things have moved on. And we want to find out what God is saying to us now. We want someone to write something for us now, to speak to us now. And Peter says, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, after I'm dead, after I'm gone, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter says, I've actually provided for your present. I'll tell you when you can throw your Bibles away. When verse 19, the day dawns, when the Old Testament day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of judgment comes, when the morning star rises in your heart. And according to Revelation 22, that's about Jesus. When Jesus returns, that's when you can probably bin your Bible. And for now, it's sufficient to keep me godliness. It, it, it's sufficient to keep me in godly living. Sufficient to make me fruitful. Sufficient for me to receive a rich welcome in the kingdom of heaven. And it does that by, by reminding me. By reminding me. By reminding me what's true. It says, until the day dawns, pay attention to it. The, the language there is almost like a murky dungeon. A murky dungeon is the sort of sense of that word. The world is increasingly like that. So pay attention. In the dark, you want to pay very careful attention to the light that you have. You know, if you've got only one candle and one match, you look after that light. Because that's your only source of guidance in that darkness. And we've been given a light in this dark world. So pay attention. Well... I want you to take action as a result of this today. We remember the words of the prophets. We remember the words of the apostles. We need to pay attention. One of the things I've been saying is that the revelation of God, God's revelation of himself, of what the historical event actually means, actually has contact with history. And I want to encourage you here, if you're a person who's not a Christian person, to check out the history. 
because it's there in the public record. There are a few resources there, and I can leave that up for you to have a little look at. A lot of it's very easy to, to look at. There's a talk there that was done by Dr Chris Forbes, a lecturer in ancient history at Macquarie University back in 2006 here at the EU. And you can access that and have a listen to a talk on history. Right? Not, not just what the Bible says or something, but the history of the Bible. You can read books like Paul Barnett's book, Is the New Testament History? Uh, John Dixon has had a couple of uh, 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 DVDs put out that's been run on Channel 7. The Life of Jesus and the Christ Files. Have a look at that. Or well, F.F. Bruce has written a more technical book called The Books and the Parchments. Check it out. Check out the history. Check out the interpretation of that history as well. Because while you might find that true, don't just sit there and say, well, it's all true. It doesn't mean anything to me. Because what that history is interpreted as is that Jesus is the king. That Jesus is the king who's going to come back and be the judge. That Jesus is God. Check out that history and check out that interpretation with your friends. If you're a Christian person here today, then I want you to pay attention. One of the things that really dismays me, I think, in this modern world of ours, in the modern Christian world, is that very, very few Christians actually regularly read their Bible. Now, I understand you know, the whole legalism thing, right? That you don't want to just read it so that you get right with God and, and you don't just want to do it because it's you know, to have some legalistic fulfilment of all the requirements of God or something like that. But I think we've gone so far the other way that many of us don't actually take an opportunity to read the Scriptures. And if there's one encouragement here today is that we need to remember. And the only way that you're going to remember is by reading God's Word. Can I get you to make it your effort over the the time that you're at university to read your Bible from cover to cover? Stacks of resources that are available, whether the the Scripture Union notes or whether it's Matthias Media in their briefing articles, the Daily Reading Bible. You you can get the one-year Bible where the Bible's divided up into 365 bits. The AFES has put out reading guides. There's all sorts of ways that can help you read your Bible. I use Search the Scriptures. It's a three-year program. It's wonderful. Just read a section, and rather than just going blankly over your head, there's the three questions that it asks of every passage that you read. It's very helpful. But put that into practice. Read it. Annual conference a few years ago, we had the pleasure of John Stott speaking uh, for one evening at annual conference. He was interviewed by Graham Chiswell, who was the staff team leader at the time. And he's this great man, great Christian man, written lots of books, been so influential in the Protestant evangelical movement in England. And the question was put to him, John, how have you persevered in your Christian faith? How have you continued to grow in your Christian faith now that you're 80 years old or whatever it was? And John Stott, without hesitating, said, my daily reading of the scriptures, prayer, prayer and Bible reading, There's no secret. And I'm not telling you anything new here today. But you need to remember. And the way that we're going to remember is by reading the scriptures. Having access to it. Reminding each other through small groups, public meetings, your own personal reading. Get on with it. It's actually a real privilege. It brings me to the last illustration, which I've nicked off from Bryson Smith, but it's a good illustration. 
tells a story about a slave back in the time of the American Civil War, uh, a black American slave in in, uh, the deep south of America. And very unusually for that time, the master of of, uh, the property passed away but left that slave a sum of 50,000 US dollars. Now, that's a big sum now, but back then, back in the American Civil War, $50,000 was an amazing, amazing amount of money. And so the bank manager called him in and said, look, your master's passed away. This is what he has left you, $50,000. And he spent time explaining it over and over again. And then at the end of the explanation, he asked, so do you have any questions that you want to ask me? And to which the slave replied, please, sir, can I borrow 50 cents so I can buy a sack of cornmeal? He had no idea how rich he was. He had no idea how privileged he was that he now had $50,000 in the bank. For us, we don't have to search out what God's like. We don't have to think him up, you know, get into a deep meditative state and try to imagine what God is like. We don't have to do experiments or observe the the stars to see what God is like. God, the creator of the universe, has revealed himself. And we ignore his revelation? The creator of the universe has caused his revelation to be written down in the book so that we can read it, understand it, obey it, and grow. And we ignore it. We can have this revelation which is fully sufficient for life and godliness through knowledge. We have everything that we need so we won't fall and enter into that rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. And we ignore it. Don't be stupid. Remember the words of the prophets. Remember the apostolic witness. Pay attention. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that in the past you spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways. But Father, that in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures inspired by your Spirit, that we can understand them through your Spirit. Father, help us to pay attention. Help us to be diligent readers of your word. Help us to understand and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.